really wonderful uh, words to those songs that we sung. Emphasis on holiness. We're going to talk about holiness today. I'll be preaching from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Isaiah 6, and it's verses 1 to 8. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles and uh, turn there to that Old Testament prophecy book. My sermon title today is, Who is Your King? Who is Your King? Well, let me, uh, let me pray as we open up God's Word. Father, thank you for our time ahead. I pray that our message time would be fruitful as we open your perfect Word. And I pray that this would be your message to those assembled here that you've brought here by the power of your Spirit. And that hearts would be open to receiving this message today. Lord, I, I pray that uh, my words, uh, I just lift up to you as an act of love and obedience and, and worship. And Lord, I pray to just get out of the way here as you minister to each of us. Lord, that I would neither add anything to or take anything away from the truth that you have for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, we've had a tough year, have we not? Uh, it's, it's a lot to think about looking back over the last year. But in particular, um, I want to just mention the U.S. presidential election. You know, So apart from any personal feelings that I would have about that, you know, whether it was stolen or not, or whether or not the media was just scandalously biased or not, or, or now whether the new administration and its philosophies and agenda is really going to be hard on believers, which I believe it will be, there's really just... Um, one simple fact that's undeniable, and that is Donald Trump is out of office. He's out of office. He's no longer president of the United States. His executive prerogatives have been stripped away, and he can no longer move any of the great levers of power in our nation in favor of any agenda, much less a conservative path that would be favorable to Christians. So in a sense, in a sense, a king has fallen, and with his demise, there's uncertainty, is there not? There's temporal uncertainty. And, and many are really having a hard time with this. Many are left defeated and feeling threatened and what's going to happen next. And there's a sense of loss and bereavement, really, right? So what are we to do when our leaders, our temporal leaders, our human leaders, our kings, so to say, fall away? What are we to do when that happens? Well, as, as always, uh, we have to look to the Bible for answers. We have to look to this book. This has what we need. This is sufficient to answer every scenario in life. And uh, the scripture verse we're going to go to this morning is going to be especially helpful, I think, when we have a sense that everything's falling apart around us. At least it ministered to me in that way. So it's going to tell us, as I read it here in a minute, about a king, another king that fell almost 2,800 years ago, he was a great king of Israel. And first he fell seriously ill, and then he died. And the people of Judah were left in an uncertain place. They were, they were left feeling defeated. They were left feeling threatened. They were left feeling a sense of loss and bereavement. It was an upendedness feel to things. And so that sovereign was King Uzziah. King Uzziah, if you remember your Sunday school lessons and all that we know about all the kings of Israel. And so King Uzziah actually took the throne of Israel at age 16. And then he reigned for almost 52 years. 
And overall, his reign was considered a pretty good success. Uh, One writer put it this way, the most prosperous, excepting that of Jehoshaphat since the time of Solomon. In the early part of his reign, he was doing really well under the prophet Zechariah's influence, and he was faithful to God. And from 2 Kings 15 and from 2 Chronicles 26, he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was uh, doing well. And in Jerusalem, he was a progressive thinking king in terms of technology, in terms of military skill. So he figured out how to use towers to position um, archers and and to be able to hurl large stones in combat. So he was a protector. He also was into agriculture and uh, did some good things for the growing of food and such. And so really the takeaway on him was he refortified the country, reorganized and re-equip the army and then advance some things in agriculture for the good of the people. So he was a vigorous and able ruler, and his name spread abroad even to the entrance of Egypt, as it says in Second Chronicles. So then something terrible happened. Something terrible happened. Uzziah's pride led to his downfall. He entered the temple of Yahweh to burn incense on the sacred altar. And the high priest at the time, a man by the name of Azariah, he saw this and saw it as an attempt to usurp the the role of the priesthood. And so there was a confrontation. He and 80 men kind of did a throwdown. And so you have this really high drama moment. And they said to him, as is written in 2 Chronicles 26, "'It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated.'" to burn incense. So it's intense. And then, and then, God himself intervened. God himself intervened. He struck Uzziah with deadly leprosy right in that moment. This is something that I, I found in my research. is from Flavius Josephus, who, who was a Jewish priest and scholar and historian who wrote valuable historical works that actually corroborate a lot of what we know from Scripture Not that we need that because we know Scripture is true, but it's always interesting and helpful to see something corroborated, right? And so here's what uh, Flavius Josephus said, and I'm quoting, A great earthquake shook the ground, and a rent was made in the temple. And the bright rays of the sun shone through it and fell upon the king's face, insomuch that the leprosy seized upon him immediately. Not good. So Uzziah was suddenly struck with leprosy. And in his defilement, he was driven from the temple and compelled to reside in a separate house, it says in 2 Kings. And he had to stay there until his death. And so this did not have a great effect on the government at the time, as you can imagine. So what happened was there was sort of a scrambling and some disarray, and they emergently turned the kingship over to Uzziah's son, Jotham, And uh, there was sort of this inefficient co-regency that went on for about 10 years. And um, and then King Uzziah died. So his his pride, you know, kind of brought some pain to the people, right? It wasn't a good, it wasn't a good outcome in terms of his leadership. And uh, so there were consequences not only to himself, but to the entire nation under his sovereign charge. And the saddest part about this is King Uzziah died as he lived in his final decade of life 
alone, estranged, and unclean. Alone, estranged, and unclean. So it's a dramatic fall. So the question then, which I'd argue remains the relevant question always, and especially now perhaps, what are the people? What are you and I to do when our leaders fail, when they fall, when they are no longer there for us, right? What are we to do when kings, emperors, prime ministers, or presidents go out of office? Well, this book is, is going to give us the answer, and it really is a timeless answer. We have to remember the holy, heavenly king who's sovereign and on his throne all the time. All right? And so let me just read the scripture now from Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. It's going to give us a picture of the holy, heavenly king. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And the one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole world is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Send me, said Isaiah. Well, you might say that King Uzziah was a terrestrial king. He was, a, he was an earthbound king. He was, he was a limited king. He was just limited the way we all are limited, right? Because, you know, we're born in the flesh. We struggle with the flesh. We live in a fallen creation. All of it's, I think, pretty obvious. The things are going the way, it's not the way it's supposed to be, right? We look all around and we say, this is not how it's supposed to be. So that the, it's fallen. The creation is fallen and it's all explained in Scripture. And so he was an earthbound created being and really not able to control much of anything. Right? He didn't really have a lot of control, even though he was king over Israel. So what we have here is contrast. Isaiah is encountering, in his vision, a wholly different king. And, and it's the real, eternal, sovereign, unchanging, gracious, and loving king over all the universe who stands far above any earthbound authority and physical limitations. And thankfully, all of us here today... We have the opportunity to place our trust in this king, this king, by faith over anyone or anything earthbound. That should give us a sense of encouragement today, even as stuff is not going all that well. So we want to look at what Isaiah did. You know, what did he do? How did he respond? Well, I want to show you that young Isaiah, and this is when he's been called to be a prophet by God to to speak for God to kings and to the people of Israel, I want to show you that he models for us three necessary steps to ensuring our faith is authentic 
in the holy heavenly king. The first is you must absorb the king's holiness, and I'll explain what that means here in a second. Second is you must accept the king's grace. And third, you must answer the king's call. Absorb his holiness, accept his grace, answer his call in your life. Well, let's look at point number one, absorbing the king's holiness. This is an imperative. Verses one through four. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting up upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of the him who called in the house was filled with smoke. Picture of holiness, a powerful message of holiness. So what does the word absorb mean? Well, if you look in the English dictionary, it's going to tell you it means to take in or soak up, which describes being filled or, or inundated with you, if you will, from something from the outside. So it's not just being impacted by something, it's having it invade you, if you will. It's like a sponge absorbs liquid to its capacity or rocks in a fireplace will absorb the heat of the fire, the flames around. Another definition is to take in and, hear this, understand fully, understand fully information, ideas, or experience. Okay, so absorbing, absorbing this reality of holiness. So with these thoughts in mind, let's, let's look at Isaiah's vision and what he needed to absorb. First thing to notice about this vision is that the Lord is sitting upon a throne. There's kingly imagery here. And the throne is high and lifted up. And the train of his robe as he sits on this high and lifted up throne is utterly majestic. It fills the entire temple. The other thing to notice is there's some pretty awesome heavenly court attendants, the seraphim. And so what, I, what Isaiah is seeing here is a theophany. A theophany, it's when holy God provides a visible manifestations of himself for some specific reason. He always has an important purpose in it. So what Isaiah is seeing is what holy God wants to show him, and which is kingliness. And we'll get to that in a second. But it's really important to understand that uh, Isaiah is not seeing the face of God, because John 1.18 correctly tells us that no one has ever seen God, for he is spirit, right? And it's a good thing, because guess what happens when you, when, if, if you ever see God, when a human being sees God? Remember Moses in Exodus 30, 20, 33.20? God told him when he asked to, to see God, he's put in the cleft of the rock, and he's allowed to see the, the train of him, him walking away, if you will. No one can see me and live, is what God told him. Wow. So God's holiness can kill. That should, that should hit you. It should, it should jar you because what we want to do is really grasp this idea of holiness, just how different God really is. His holiness can kill. His unfiltered magnificence and perfection are too much for a human to bear and survive. But in his gracious condescension, the entire Bible is about grace. He sometimes clothes himself with what I'll call safe visibility, and it's always for our good. And so this is what's happening here. In this instance, he became visible to Isaiah. And how did he show himself? 
What, what was the picture he wanted Isaiah to see? He showed himself an exalted kingliness. The vision is of God on a throne with regal robes and brilliant court attendants, all of which speaks to sovereign majesty and dominion. It's kingliness. Well, and it's interesting because just as Isaiah's terrestrial king is declared irrelevant, so why, why did the passage open with, in the year King Uzziah died? He's really trying to be intentional there to draw a contrast. So Isaiah represents kind of all kings, all presidents, all prime ministers. It's human leaders. And we're seeing a picture of death, and then we're seeing a vision of the king. And it's the comparison is meant to show utter opposites. Complete opposites. You have a leprous and dying, perhaps already dead, King Uzziah. He's representing all human leaders. And then you have Yahweh is showing himself as the holy, heavenly king. So two kingdoms, two kings to compare. One is earthly, dark, disappointing, dying, powerless, futile, sin-cursed, hopeless. It's a dead end. And then the other... Is heavenly, filled with light, awesome, alive, all-powerful, holy and pure, the very personification of hope. The very personification of hope. And so Isaiah is to fully see and understand this. His is to know that God is king, and not only that, he's the king. He is the king, right? So along with kingliness, he's got to absorb holiness. So what in the world is holiness? Well, the word holy means transcendent, sacred, set apart, revered, divine. But I'll tell you, we, we can't really understand holiness because, you know, we can only look at it. We can only think about it. We can only see it as described in Scripture because we're not holy. And so words do fail. Those are pretty good words. But, but even as we try to understand it fully, and we should try to understand it fully... We have to see that Isaiah has got to see this and get it because God has big plans for Isaiah. He's going to ask much of Isaiah, and in so doing, his faith is going to be tremendously tested throughout his life as a prophet. And uh, the book of Isaiah is just so magnificent. There's so much in there. So here's the calling, and then here he's having to absorb holiness. So John MacArthur writes this about holiness, and I'm quoting, Of all the attributes of God, holiness is the one that most uniquely describes him and in reality is a summation of all his other attributes. The word holiness refers to his separateness, his otherness, the fact that he is unlike any other beings. Some other commentators have, have tried to put all this in words. I'll read you a couple. Holiness is God's infinite moral perfection, crowning his infinite intelligence and power, Here's another one. Holiness is the most sparkling jewel of God's crown. It is the name by which he is known. One more. Holiness is to be regarded not as a distinct attribute, but as the result of all God's moral perfection together. So we need to, we need to try to understand this. We need to try to embrace it. We need to try to have it penetrate our heart. And, and the inspired text helps with this. It talks about the seraphim, I would argue. Look at verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew, and the one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Well, these angelic court attendants, you're not going to find them anywhere in any human court, in any presidential office or in any palace, throne room. These are awesome heavenly beings. And they're working in nonstop service, worshipful service to Yahweh. And they're, they're just indescribably awesome and, and they, in turn, are expressing their overwhelming and ongoing awe of God. They're just joyfully, 24-7, enjoying him and praising his name. They're experiencing his holiness. And so these six-winged creatures, they're just magnificent in their own right. We can, we can only imagine. But, I mean, think in terms of the greatest things in, in the creation. You, know, you look at, go out in Prince William Sound and you see a whale, you know, sort of, the big tail coming out, it just, it's like, whew, that's awesome, right? Think about these heavenly creatures who are in the throne room of God. And so they're magnificent. And they cover their eyes with one set of wings, says not to even look upon the brilliant perfection of God. That's the symbology here. With another set of wings, they cover their feet, and that's showing of respect for the one true God. And then with their final set of wings, they're flying. They fly. They fly in humble, obedient service to the king's commands, and they're just respectfully serving. They're volunteering, exalting worship all the time, and one is just announcing and praising and singing to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is a maximum point of emphasis in Scripture. Whenever you see anything written down three times, you should pay attention. Holy, holy, holy is what these creatures are constantly singing to one another. So the king also is credited with possessing an abundance of glory. Glory. Glory is another one that is hard to uh, really define and understand in, in human language. It's, I mean, we, we see glimpses of glory in the fallen creation, right? But we can't really fully comprehend glory. But this tells us that the whole earth is filled with his glory. And this is glory that's utterly unique to him. And if that's not enough, we read the holy heavenly king's righteous voice literally shakes the foundations and brings sanctified smoke. Verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called in the house was filled with smoke. So I want to point out to you that's interesting that there's three references to filling going on here, Right? In this description, we have God's robe filling the temple, we have his glory filling the earth, and we have his voice filling the house with smoke. Well, the language here is from the Hebrew verb male, and uh, it's the same verb used three times. And basically, it's making an important point, emphatically, in fact, about teaching God's imminence along with his holiness along with his transcendence. So imminence means he's everywhere. Imminent and transcendent at the same time. His holiness is not associated with remoteness or aloofness. Hear that. Not remote and aloof. His holiness is understood or absorbed, I would argue, through his presence, through his omnipresence. He is here fully imminent in his created universe, which means he was there in the temple in Isaiah's time, and he's here with us in this sanctuary today. 
Do you believe that? He's here, imminent, in this sanctuary as we open his word this morning. The holy heavenly king is with us all the time, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. That's powerful. Divine transcendence and imminence are always in balance in biblical theism. And Isaiah himself actually accents this later in, in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah twelve six. if you want to flip there really quick. He says, Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great, here it is, in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So what we have here is imminence, transcendence, and you could say that imminence means intimacy. Intimacy. We have an imminent, intimate God. This is what Isaiah is absorbing in his vision and taking in fully. Kingliness and holiness. Kingliness and holiness. So what was his reaction? What was Isaiah's reaction? What was the impact of seeing the theophany, the vision of the holy heavenly king? Well, we weren't there to see it in our flesh and blood, but we should really learn from how Isaiah responded. And we should be impacted the same way. This soon-to-be prophet was undone by God's holiness. Look at verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. So the sight of the heavenly King and the sound of the holy hymn of these worshiping seraphim, it, it brought... Big impact, Isaiah. It brought something to his heart. And it wasn't just delight or excitement, like, wow, like when my wife Cynthia sees a whale in Prince William Sound. <laughs> I've already mentioned that. <laughs> she loves whales. And uh, there's this, ah. That's not, what, that's not what we saw here. It's not what we see. It brought conviction to Isaiah's heart. Conviction. And he immediately confessed that he was a sinner. There was some business to be done. There was business to be on. Sin had to be dealt with. And so Isaiah confessed that he had not met the king's righteous standards. And the young man could only fall flat on his face in fear-filled guilt and shame before holy perfection, holy sinlessness. This is a pretty common response throughout Scripture. In fact, John Calvin wrote in the Institutes of Christian Religion, he makes a statement that goes like this. Hence that dread and terror by which holy men of old trembled before God, as Scripture uniformly relates. Dread and terror. And Calvin was saying that there is a pattern to human responses to God's presence in all of Scripture, right? And it seems that, that the more righteous the person is being described, the more they tremble before God in his presence. So Isaiah proved this out in the ESV. It gives us the word lost as his reaction. The Hebrew word describing that sense of being lost before the holy heavenly king is dama, which means to cease or cause to cease, to cut off or to destroy. And so the King James translation uses undone. The New American Standard uses ruined, regardless What's happening here is Isaiah is fearing obliteration before holiness. He's fearing obliteration before holiness. And he cried out his confession, which also included a corporate confession for all of Israel. 
I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So I want to hit this again. There's just not just a sense of awe in Isaiah's encounter, like when we see a volcano erupt or a glacier calve or, you know, those that are fortunate enough to go see, you know, um, a safari in Africa and see the amazing animals on the plains of Serengeti. You know, we like to watch the National Geographic nature shows, and we're just like, wow, that's amazing. We're just getting a glimpse, glimpse of goodness and glory and creation and just how amazing God is. But when we, when we are encountering him, really the, the, the answer in, in our, our response should be one of utter condemnation and a sense of absolute helplessness before holiness. Do you see that? And so here's, here's what you need to know. Someone other than Isaiah has to come to the rescue here, or Isaiah is not going to get through this moment. Somebody's got to rescue him, right? He's just flat in his face before holiness, and he can't talk or think his way out of this, right? And who is it that's going to come to the rescue? Who's going to come to his rescue? Well, remember that all sin is against God. David asserted in Psalm 51, 4, against you and you only have I sinned. So only God can ultimately forgive sin. So we have our answer. We have our answer. Isaiah's rescue must come from God. It must come from God. And verses 6 and 7 are going to show us this, but before we look at that, I want to just focus a bit more on the rescuer, the rescuer who is God, God himself. The Gospel of John makes mention of Isaiah's vision in John 12, 41, and it reads, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. While the New Testament is rich in Christology, we know that it's rich in Trinitarian teaching. The Old Testament writers give us hints of that. It's just glimpses of it, but then it all comes to fruition in in the New Testament as we're introduced to Christ and his ministry. So what the Apostle John is saying in Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, he's basically saying the theophany that Isaiah is experiencing right there is actually... A Christophany. It's the picture of Christ on the throne. The vision on the throne is Christ. Christ, fully God, the second member of the Trinity, is portrayed in this vision of the holy heavenly king. And we know this is all right in line with all of Scripture, right? Jesus is the king. And moreover, he's the picture of rescue. He is our rescue. And it's by way of grace. He's the one that forgives sins, right? In the Synoptic Gospels, there's a really important uh, section in there, a really important story. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see um, the story of when Jesus healed the paralytic. Do you remember that story? So I'll reference Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, if you'd like to just write that down and look at it later. What happened here is Jesus miraculously and completely heals a suffering man who they call the paralytic. So in a physical sense, he was needing to be healed and, and um, was in, in poor physical shape. And, but Jesus did something else. He said something else to this man. He told him that his sins were forgiven. So he healed him physically and then he heals him spiritually, forgiving his sins. 
And which, remember, only God himself can do. So Jesus, make no mistake, was claiming to be God, equal with God in this way. And this really sent the Jewish leaders tumbling. They didn't like hearing that. In Mark, the scribes are in a panic, and they record, the gospel records these scribes saying, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, Jesus is God. And Jesus is the king that's being uh, just the, the Christology, the, the Christophany that's happening there with Isaiah. So Jesus Christ is the promised king of the Davidic line. Christ is the gracious redeemer, and Christ will come again as triumphant king as promised in Revelation. And only Christ can fulfill all of these promises as God the Son, who is king. Revelation seventeen fourteen says this. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Lord of lord and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Christ is the rescuer Isaiah is seeing in this vision. That's awesome. Which brings us to imperative number two. You must accept the king's grace. You must accept the king's grace. Look at verses six and seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So motivated by grace, by amazing grace, the holy heavenly king is rescuing Isaiah here. He sends the solution. It's an atoning hot coal from the brazen altar of the temple in the vision. And all of this is symbolic of the Old Testament blood sacrifice system. I'd like you to see that. Under Mosaic covenant law, temporary atonement was brought, brought the removal of guilt through what? Through the shedding of blood which we know was animal blood. It was the blood of specific sacrificial animals, the blood of goats and calves, as it says in Hebrews 9.12. This is important. And we know that blood is the agent of forgiveness because life is in the blood. And so a few verses later in Hebrews 9.22, we see that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the same Lord of hosts in this vision, overwhelming Isaiah, he is the one who provided the temporary atoning hot coal. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And he is the one who accomplished the perfect, permanent atonement by shedding his pure, precious blood as a sacrifice, making possible the new covenant of grace. So we have the old covenant of sacrificing animals that was always temporary, then you have the new covenant of grace that Christ ushered in through his perfect sacrifice, through the shedding of his pure blood. It's amazing, the new covenant of grace. I recommend a, a very careful reading of all of Hebrews 9 if this interests you to follow up. Jeff preached through this and did a marvelous job. There's so much here, but let me just read Hebrews 9, verses 12 to 15. He... Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer 
sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that there those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the old covenant. So Hebrews 9 helps us here. It shows that uh, worship in the Old Testament could not perfect the worshiper because it was related to the law. It was about food and drink and clean and unclean and regulations for the body and then about the sacrificial system, which was always temporary. But when Christ appeared, he entered into the heavenly tabernacle and poured out his own blood. On the mercy seat, the blood of bulls and goats was never able to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper under the old system, but the blood of Christ is able to save completely. It saves completely as it cleansed us thoroughly, and we are now without blemish or accusation before God. So what Isaiah was seeing was a foreshadowing, a picture of atonement, and then we have the permanent atonement. What a solution. What grace. What a God to rescue, and we can't rescue ourselves. We are like Isaiah in that moment. When we stand, when we, when we contemplate holiness, and we have the right high view of God, we have to just see a low view of ourselves, and we have to be overwhelmed by our own sin. And then we have to know that it's only by grace that we're saved from that sin. Do you see that? What a solution. H.B. Charles mentioned in a sermon he gave some years ago entitled, A High View of God. And he was, uh, there was a conference on comparative religions going on, and the participants were buzzing and meeting and talking, and, and uh, they were together and they were in a room arguing the question, what makes Christianity distinct from other religions? Is it incarnation? Well, not necessarily. Other religions claim God became man. Is it resurrection? Well, other religions believe that dead people can rise again. So what is it that makes Christianity distinct? While they were debating in the room, C.S. Lewis wandered in late to the meeting, and he asked what the subject was, and they told him, and then Lewis responded by saying, well, that's an easy question. The thing that makes Christianity unique is the doctrine of grace. The doctrine of grace. The good news of amazing grace is uniquely Christian. Every other religion teaches people how to reach up to God in one way or another. How you can participate in removing guilt or shame. What you have to do to work your way out of the problem of your own sin. They all do, except Christianity. We've all sinned against holy God, but Christianity begins by declaring that we're all in that same boat and we can never earn the righteous merit needed to satisfy God's holy demands fully. We need a Savior. We need Christ. But God in His grace, He reached down to reconcile to us. And we have the impeccable life, atoning death, and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. God did it for us. He saved us, just like He gave in that vision the atonement that Isaiah needed. 
to be freed from his sin and to be ready for service. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God is so gracious. And the picture in Isaiah 6 of the seraphim sent by the holy heavenly king, providing Isaiah the solution to his unsolvable problem outside of his own powers, it's an awesome picture of Christ's atoning death for us. I hope you see that. Before we can minister to others, we must allow God to minister to us. Before we can pronounce woe upon others, we have to sincerely say, woe is me. Isaiah's conviction led to his confession, and the confession led to his cleansing, just as it was later recorded in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have to accept the king's grace. He offers it freely. We have to accept it. Well, let's look now at imperative number three. In the time we have left, you must understand the king's call or you must answer the king's call. Salvation comes with a call from God to serve him and him alone, and it's really an all-in commitment. Look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. The nation of Israel really uh, needed the Lord, and the Lord wanted a servant to minister to the people. He was calling Isaiah to this mission. And here we have Isaiah, his guilt removed by the atonement, the atoning coal to his lips, his readiness now a product of divine grace. He's challenged to respond, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Notice the tension between God's sovereign plan for Isaiah's life, doing all the work of grace for him, doing the atonement work for him, rescuing him when he couldn't rescue himself. But then there's, there's some tension here because he's got to say yes. You have predestination, if you will, and then you have Isaiah's personal responsibility to step up and say, here am I, send me. There's actually a beautiful balance offered here. Human will is really important in God's design. We don't save ourselves, but we're on the hook to say yes by faith, to move out by faith and to do what God asks us to do. So God does the sovereign work of salvation, but man is also held responsible for rejecting grace. That's an important tension in Scripture, and it's real. We have to say yes. So what Isaiah does in response to the challenge to go, he's motivated out of a right heart. He's appreciative of his salvation. And he enthusiastically steps forward without conditions, and he says yes. It's an expression of his gratitude. One commentator expected this way. He, Isaiah, is not coerced into service. Rather, he, his will makes its ready response as a grateful reaction to God's forgiving grace. Think about it this way. When we get this right, when a person is fully able to understand how high above us God really is and how much we need him, our low view of ourselves, our desperation, if you will, when we fully comprehend that and then we receive grace, the very thing that God wants to give us, the one thing that he really wants from us becomes truly possible, and that's to love him. 
Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus said it later, adding in that we need to love our neighbors. And this becomes possible when we receive grace and answer the call. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And then we can love him more than anything, even life itself. We put no conditions on it. We go where he sends us, no matter if it's to prison, no matter if it's to to a war zone. It's not a negotiation with God to get this or that. If I believe, it's I'm all in, send me. Because we know that we have eternal life in him. We have to believe that. So we can love him like Paul did in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We have to answer the king's call. So here is the great question. As we think about all this, especially as believers, as we ponder kingliness, holiness, grace, calling, how is it that even as earthly kings fall, even as we see just tremendous disappointment in those who are in positions of leadership, how does so many continue to turn away from the holy heavenly king? How is that possible? Well, they just look for hope of some kind in some earthbound counterfeit. How is that possible? Well, let me just read to you from Romans 1, verses 18 to 23. It will help explain some of it. If you want to flip there, Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God and did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is really the opposite of Isaiah's response. It's like a polar opposite, if you will. Someone who, who knows there's a God because it's plain to everyone, it just, it's there. We know it. It says here in Romans that it's true. They've experienced God. They've tasted of some of his holiness in a fallen world. But they say, thanks, but no thanks. Thanks, but no thanks. And the Apostle Paul is telling us in this scathing analysis that we're without excuse. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Well, many reject the holy heavenly king knowingly because for some reason, in our arrogance, in our sin, in our hubris, people believe that they can do better at ruling creation than God can. As John MacArthur put it, they want, the, they want the crown without the cross. Really, there's, there's only one way to the king, and it's through the cross. It's through the cross. You can't have 
the crown without the cross. So suppressing the truth, suppressing God, why do people do that? They, they don't have a high enough view of God. They don't understand His holiness. They don't understand their sin. They don't understand their need for grace. And without accepting grace, you can't really understand accepting a call from God that would have you do things you never thought you were going to be called to do. So they want some, some negotiated version of life where they can create a God that suits their purposes. It's really sad. And that's why we need to be salt and light here on this campus at Anchorage Grace Church and all the ministries, Grace Christian School. We have to be speaking the truth in love. We have to be loving our neighbors as ourselves and be bold and say, I love you, but your worldview is, is not what the Bible says. Let me open my Bible and talk to you about salvation, about grace. I was thinking about suppressing the truth, and, and the image came to mind of a game we used to play. I grew up in Florida, and we had a humble little pool in our backyard. Everyone had pools has pools in Orlando, Florida. It's super hot there in the summer. And as a kid, we would swim, swim, swim all the time. And we used to play a game, and we had a beach ball of sorts. It was kind of a soccer ball. I remember this vividly. We used to try to take that thing and shove it all the way down to the bottom of the pool. And it took a tremendous amount of work because, man, that thing would just pop out and pop out. That's what suppressing the truth is like. Suppressing the truth. It's really hard work to suppress the truth that's all around us. Is it not? I mean, think about that. Think about how much work it takes to go on the path that our culture is going. The lengths that people go to to think things that just don't add up logically, suppressing the truth, trying to get that beach ball down to the bottom and it just won't stay. The only way we could ever get it down to the bottom is to let the air out of it. When you let the air out of it, you change its nature, right? You're basically saying... This thing I'm trying to get to the bottom is not what it once was. That's what people do with the truth. Do they not? So, I just want to leave you with some questions. We know the culture is going in a bad direction. We know people are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. What we need to do is just get a right, high view of God, a low view of ourselves, Test our own salvation. Test it honestly. Ensure that we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, dwelt and, and sealed by the Spirit, and we're walking with God. And then trust that He is completely in control. And we're going to be okay. We're, we're going to be okay. Because He's the King, and all of His promises will come true. We know that every doctrinal truth that's laid down in God's inspired Word, there's going to be a countering untruth that's packaged and repackaged all the time in the world. We know that's coming. But what we need to do is just step back and think through this passage and ask ourselves, are we willing to absorb holiness? Are we ready to confess our own sin in the sight of this holiness, this magnificence, this transcendence, this thing we can't even wrap our brains around? Are we ready to confess our sin in sight of that? Are we ready to receive grace that we so desperately need. Are we willing to say yes to God in gratitude for grace? Here I am, send me. Are we willing to really do that? Here I am, send me. Do we have a high enough view of God? Who is your king this morning? 
Who is your king? Have you turned by faith to the holy heavenly king? My prayer is that I would be like Isaiah and be undone before the throne of heaven.